Okay, so I want to start off by asking you all a question. What's, what is some of the best news that you've ever been told that just made your day? What's, what's the best news that you've heard? When the power on top of the leader. On top of the ladder. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I, as I wrote my notes, I knew that that comment was coming. <laughs> I, just, I, I, I knew it. They'd go top, 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 and then hopefully stop, stop, stop. So, right. <laughs> a anything else? What's some of the best news that you've heard? Wow. Yeah, pretty good. Awesome. Awesome news. Yeah. When my daughter went into remission from cancer. Remission from cancer. Awesome. Yeah. 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 Good. Sorry. When someone comes to the Lord. Correct. Correct answer right there. At the end of my high schooling, or during the schooling, I was sort of very average sort of student. I got into ag science. And that was just right. a continual climb to the point where at the end uh, there happened to be a little scholarship yeah. presented because one of my colleagues and I actually topped the class. Awesome, awesome. Good grades, getting into uni, all of that. So, so I want you to imagine the hypothetical best day of your life. You know, and and I've, I've thought of a little bit of a different scenario here, but your hypothetical best day of your life you wake up to a knock on the door and there's a lawyer standing there and he tells you that you've got a long-lost great-great-uncle's third cousin who's just died and he's left a massive inheritance to you. Right? A fortune with millions and millions of dollars. And then not only that, as a, as a result of investigating your family tree to figure out the next of kin, they've traced your family tree and it turns out you're actually next in line to the British throne as well. So you know, just, just an added bonus there. You get accepted into the degree that you want. You know, don't know if you want that job or not, but it's thrust upon you anyway. Does that mean that you actually had a nightmare, not a dream? Yeah, OK. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is a bad example. but you know. Anyway. After lunch, you receive an email from uh, with, with a, a marriage proposal. A beautiful Nigerian princess wants to... No, that one might be a scam, the last one. But, but, but no, nonetheless, it, it's a huge day. You know, you've, you've had all this great news, that, you know, millions of dollars, a fortune, a great future ahead of you. And you go out to celebrate, you know, as, as we all would, we'd head to the Minlerton pub for a beef schnitzel and a Coke and raspberry. Again, this is very specific for me, maybe. But... And then you go to celebrate, and you run, in, you run into someone, and, and, he, and he says to you, how, you know, how have you been? How's your day been? What have, what have you been up to? You go, oh, oh no, not much. How about you? you know, is, is that how you'd respond? Or, or would you, you'd be ecstatic about all the good news that you've had that day. You couldn't wait to share with them exactly what's happened. So when we recognise the greatness of the good news that we have, it compels us to share. And I'm pretty sure you can already tell exactly where I'm going with this in the sermon, right? That when we know the greatness of the good news, we can't help but share it. So that's what I'm going to preach on today is evangelism, our role in sharing the gospel. And I want to particularly focus uh, on our, our struggle to share the gospel as well. And I've, I've done that in the past. I've preached uh, at Gospel Church uh, on our struggle to share the gospel. And I've tackled it from, from different angles. You know, that, that we need to overcome our fear of rejection and looking at the ways in which we can overcome that. I know one of the difficulties that we have in sharing the gospel is being worried that we won't have the right answers. What if I get a question that I can't handle? 
and you know figuring out studying up on apologetics so we know what to say how we respond and all those topics I think are worth considering but I think the real reason why we don't share the gospel enough is because we so easily lose sight as to how good the good news is we get blasé or apathetic towards it you know, for those of us, you know, if we've been saved 10 years, 50 years, even 80 years, we, we hear it week in, week out. This is the focus. It should be the focus of every sermon at Gospel Church. But the reality is it's still good news. If you've been hearing it every week for years and years and years and years, if you truly get it, then it's still amazingly good news. And so that's why I've chosen this passage. I, th- I think it reveals just how great the good news is. And it leads into our calling as ambassadors for Christ to share that gospel. So I'm going to go through 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as as Phil read before. And so hopefully it will give us a greater understanding of the love of God. And it will also motivate us to get out there and share it. So uh, let's uh, start in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great gospel by which you have saved us. But Lord, we are so easily hard-hearted. We so easily become apathetic and we lose our first love. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ in the gospel. Open our ears to hear from your word. Open our hearts so that we might be changed and and renewed by your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is going to be just a one-off sermon. We're, we're heading back into Luke next week. So I thought it would be good to just be given free reign, pick any topic, pick any passage, and preach on whatever you want. I thought, great, that sounds easy. You can pick whatever you want. It's actually surprisingly difficult when you've got the entire Bible to pick from. There is so much to choose from. So I had uh, a great struggle just to, to hone in on a, on a single passage. Uh, and while I was contemplating it, uh, you know, I was thinking, could I do... Um, you know, the opening verses of the book of Proverbs, and I thought it might be a little bit like a, an introduction to another series. So, you know, and then there's these passages on, on the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. Uh, maybe I won't worry about Proverbs. Maybe I'll stick with 2 Corinthians 5. And, and so I opened it up and it straight away said, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, like, okay, I guess I'm not, I'm not skipping the fear of the Lord. What, whatever passage I choose, it's going to be in there. So let's dive in. Let's uh, start reading from verse 11 of of 2 Corinthians 5. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. And it says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And so what does it mean to fear the Lord, to fear God? I think it's probably worth starting out by saying what it doesn't mean. I think we can misunderstand it, misconstrue it. So the fear of the Lord doesn't mean a fear of condemnation. And we know this because Paul elsewhere says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And even in, even in this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, earlier on in the chapter, uh, he, he says that his final destination is to be at home with the Lord. 
So we know that Paul says he fears the Lord, but he has absolutely no fear of condemnation at all. It's not a fear of having access to God because the writer of Hebrews says that we come boldly before the throne of grace. We can go to God in prayer whenever we want. We have access to God. So it's not about our access to God, it's our attitude towards God. It's one that recognises that God is on the throne and we are not. And as Phil pointed out earlier, that in this passage it begins with the word therefore. And you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? You look at the previous verses that says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So every one of us, and this includes believers, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will be judged for what we have done in service of him. Uh, so I'd, I'd recommend reading through 1 Corinthians 3 talks about that as well, that we'll stand before Christ's judgment and our works will be evaluated uh, and our motivations behind them. So we don't live in fear of condemnation though. That judgment won't be one in which we're sentenced or condemned to hell or our sins are held against us or anything like that. But we live in light of this truth, in, in trembling fear and reverence that God is the one who sits on the throne and that our actions will be judged by Him. That He is the ruler of our lives. Every detail, every aspect of every day of our lives, God is still on the throne. And that truth should change us, knowing that we're not in charge of our own lives. And so knowing what it means to fear God, knowing His place, knowing His authority, it leads us to faithfully persuade others. And especially because we know what it means for those who have to stand before the throne of Jesus and not know His grace. That should compel us to persuade others, knowing this fear of the Lord, that we should be desperate for them to come to a saving knowledge of the gospel. Uh, now, I'll continue on from verse 12. Um, I'll just briefly cover this. Um, and it's more sort of uh, fitting when you understand the whole context of the book, which I'm not doing a whole series through Second Corinthians. This is just a, a one-off. But, but in verse 12 it says, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you a cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So in the context of the whole book of Second Corinthians, Paul is writing to the Corinthians because there are other false teachers that are infiltrating the church. Yeah, and they're boasting about their own power, boasting about their own authority. And Paul writes this, but he, but he doesn't boast like they do. He doesn't say, no, no, don't, don't listen to them. I'm, you know, I'm way better than those guys. He just simply reaffirms his apostolic authority. And, and he points out that his ministry, his evangelism is done for God. It's not out of selfish ambition. It's not about a, a flashy ministry that shows off his own importance. You know, I, I don't know exactly what that would have looked like in the first century, uh, a flashy ministry uh, you know, showing off self-important um, ministers. It's pretty easy to see what that looks like today. There, there are plenty of examples of them and you know, the televangelists and things like that. But, but I think even within our own context, our own churches, it's easy to establish a church or preach the gospel in a way that focuses on our own self-importance or our own goodness. Preach the gospel in a way that shows off our own understanding of these things. 
And yet if we're showing off our own goodness and our own understanding, then it shows that we actually don't really understand the gospel. So when we proclaim the gospel, it's not about ourselves, it's not about us. And Paul even says this in in verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Think about what you must sound like when you you share the gospel. We we preach this message about a guy that lived 2,000 years ago who was hung upon a cross and died and he was taking the punishment for sins that were committed a couple of thousand years later. And we believe that he rose again from the dead. And and people think that you're absolutely crazy. And, And that's okay because we're preaching for God. When we seem out of our mind preaching this foolish message of the cross, we're doing it for God. But then he also says, if we're in in our right mind, we're doing it for you. So even though we preach this seemingly foolish message, we preach clearly, we should articulate our thoughts clearly, we should preach in a way that can be clearly understood in our cultural context for the benefit of those around us. So the the fear of God motivates us to preach for God. And so next we see the second motivation for sharing the gospel. So let's look down in the next verse, uh, verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So so what was the start of that? It said, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ motivates us. It pushes us into action. Christ died for us. Then I said before that we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that, that's still a terrifying thing. But like I said, we don't fear condemnation because of this truth here, that Christ died for your sins. It says that he did it for your sake, for your benefit, for your salvation. He died and he rose again. And he did it because he loves us. It's the love of God that was revealed in Christ. Uh, this is one of, one of my favourite verses, Romans 5.8, says that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, and 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So there's such a, a, a connection between the love of God and in putting it into action and coming and dying for our sins. So that's amazingly good news, right? That Christ would die for you even when you were sinning against him. How could we not love God in return and be his missionaries? How could we not share it? Like this is that amazing news that you've heard, you know, that if you've won the lottery or poured her on top of the ladder, if that's, you know, apparently good news. But, But... But in comparison, the amazing good news of the gospel should compel us to go and share with others.
But so which one is it though? I, I've, I've given two different points here, that the fear of God motivates us to go and share. And then Paul goes and says, now the love of God compels us to go and share. So, so which, which one is it? Which one's more important? Right. The, the answer is both, that we need to know the fear of the Lord and we need to know the love of God in order to motivate us to share the gospel. See, if you know the fear of the Lord, but not the love of God, then you may, you may still share the gospel, but only out of obligation, because you have to. It's just this task that is thrust upon you and you have to do it, and I better do it or else. And then we lack love and compassion towards the lost in our presentation of the gospel. You know, it, it becomes impersonal. I, I know I'm really guilty of that, of preaching or sharing the gospel in a really impersonal way. Speaking in generalised, general truths that Christ died for sinners and he rose again, that's what we as Christians believe. But we need to share God's love with people. We, we need to preach that Christ died for them because he loves them. That they need, that, that, that needs to come through in our preaching, the love for them knowing the love of Christ that he's given to us. And the other extreme is when we know the love of God, but we lose sight of the fear of God. Our evangelism is solely for the benefit of others, not for the glory of God. And that's good to have love for others, but it only takes us so far. You know, when people reject you, when they, you, you faithfully preach the gospel and you just get constant rejection. When no one responds correctly, it's easy for us to give up if all we have is just love for others. But if we love and fear God, knowing that he's on the throne, then that can motivate us to keep going, even when we get rejected and rejected time and time again. And it's knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing that he's on the throne, lead, leads into the next point. It says that we are to no longer live for ourselves because our life is not our own. And that really struck me this week that your life is not your own. My life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. And that's been an interesting topic, you know, in, in recent months, uh, especially coming out of America and all the COVID restrictions. In the West, we love talking about our personal freedoms, right? All, all of our rights. And they're important things. I think they've been given to us from God. I think it's it's societies that have been shaped by Christian values that recognise our rights and our freedoms, but I think they lead to a healthy society, but we get so caught up in me, 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 this is all about my own personal freedom. Did you know that your life is not your own? You are not in charge of your own life. You are not on the throne. God is. All of, all of our personal freedoms are under the umbrella that God rules and reigns over your life. See, at the end of the day, every one of us is a slave to something. We're either a slave to ourselves, our own selfish desires, or we're a slave to Christ. They're your only options. And, and paradoxically, when you are a slave to Christ, it is the most freeing thing imaginable. It is what we were created to be, servants of Christ. But our life is, is not our own. Our own life isn't up to us to pick and choose how we direct and lead it, God is on the throne. I mean, I mean re really, think about that. Think about the gospel again. 
Think about where you were heading without the gospel. Every single one of us here have sinned against God and we were heading towards eternal destruction. It's a, it's a terrifying thought that if we died without Christ, we would be separated from God eternally. And I know it's not something that we like to think about. I know it's something that's difficult to preach on. But that's where we were headed. And then God intervenes and rescues us. Even though we were sinning against Him, He intervenes and rescues us by sending His Son to die for us, takes that punishment upon Himself. We get eternal life instead. We will get to worship God for all eternity. We get communica- uh, communion with God. We get reconciliation, which I'll, I'll get to in a moment. And then how do we respond to that? We go, thanks heaps God. I promise to think about you, maybe for a couple of hours on Sunday, but don't ask any more of me, please. And it, it's, it seems insane knowing what he saved us from. We, we owe him our whole lives. All of it is to be for Christ. Now, there's still going to be boring daily tasks. You, you know, you'll still go to work, you'll still eat, you'll drink, you'll sleep, but it's all for him. I was thinking about that yesterday. Yesterday afternoon, I went for a bike ride and I thought, you know, what does that mean to have a life that's no longer my own, but it's his? You know, do, do I still get to do that, go on a bike ride? Or, you know, Phil was talking about soaring off the top of a post. You know, and and that, that's okay. It, it doesn't mean that we lock ourselves away in a monastery. It, it means that we soar off the top of a post to the glory of God. You know, we, as, as weird as that sounds, and I know that's a struggle to figure that out when we go to work, but we can get on with our daily tasks for Christ, in prayer and in worship of Him, knowing that our whole life is a gift from Him. It's all to be lived in service for Him in all that we do. And again, the, the motivation for this is because the good news is so great. So I said at the start of this passage, at the start of this sermon, that I hope we can get a greater glimpse of the greatness of the good news, the greatness of what Christ has done for us. And I think as we get to these last few verses in this passage, we really see just how good the good news is. So look down in verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I mean, you you could do a whole series on this passage and a whole sermon just on this one verse here. We're a new creation in Christ. Notice what it it doesn't say. It doesn't say you'll have a whole new mindset, right? A a whole new way of thinking. Or you'll start to develop some better habits very slowly. No, you are a new creation, a new creature in Christ. Salvation isn't a change in direction or something that you add on to your old life. It it wipes away your old life and you have new life. The old has passed away. Your, Your old life is gone. You're not that person anymore. And it reminds me of a... Uh, a story of uh, Augustine, an early church father. I don't know if it's true, but it's a good story. of um, Augustine, uh, before his conversion, um, was uh, probably in Hippo, whatever, Carthage, whatever city he was in at the time, and he used to uh, visit, we'll say, ladies of the evening quite, quite a bit. Um, and then afterwards he got, he got saved. That life was no longer for him. 
He was walking down the street and, and one of these women uh, recognised him and, and called out to him, you know, begging for him to come over and said, you know, Augustine, it is, it is I. And he replied, yes, but it is no longer I and, and kept walking because that old life is gone. It's done away with. We are a new creation in Christ. So the gospel is so much better. It's better news than a life improvement tool. That, that, that's every single infomercial imaginable is something is missing in your life, but we've got this thing that you can add to your life that will fix whatever problem we tell you that you have. The gospel is not that. It's not a life improvement tool. It gives you new life. It takes people who are dead in their sins, unable to respond to the gospel, unable to change. We, we cannot change and fix ourselves. But the gospel offers complete transformation from the inside out. And it is the only message that can transform a human heart. Uh, so let's continue on verse 18. It says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So it says the gospel is an act of reconciliation. You know, yes, we, we get forgiveness, we get new life, we get transformation. But, but our primary problem is our relationship with God. Right, I mean that, that was the tragedy of the Garden of Eden, the, the real consequence for sin. Right? When, when Adam and Eve fell, they sinned against God. Yes, there was death, but the, the tragedy was that the relationship between God and humanity was severed. See, we weren't just made to worship God, to proclaim His, His greatness, but we were created to be in relationship with Him. But we can't be in relationship with God in our natural, sinful, fallen state. But here, in this verse, it says, God doesn't count our trespasses against us. Like, how good is that that we won't face the consequences that we deserve for our sins? And if he removes the thing that broke the relationship, well, then the relationship can be restored. We were once enemies, but God has reached out to us. He took the initiative. He restored this broken relationship. And what we see in this text is God's plan for reconciliation. It begins with Christ, but it continues in us. For some reason, God has entrusted us, his people, with the ministry of reconciliation. It says we are ambassadors for Christ. Uh, I like that that um, the evangelist Ray Comfort has on his business card. It says, Ray Comfort, ambassador for Christ, Department of Eternal Affairs. So I think we all need little <laughs> business cards like that made up. But we are, we are God's ambassadors on earth. We have been entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation. We make God's appeal to other people. God makes his appeal through us. See, people often say, you know, they'll reject God and say, well, why doesn't God come down here and prove himself to me? And normally I'd say, well, he, he did already in the person of Jesus Christ. And I go, no, no, but 
but I'll believe if he comes and speaks to me. You know, they, they want the audible voice. I'll, before I'll believe, I want God to speak to me. But he is speaking to people now. Through us, as we proclaim his word, we are his representatives. We're to implore people as if God was making his appeal through us. And so there's a balance here in, in a couple of things I've just said. There, there are two paradoxical truths. Right? We, we've just seen that God, through his spirit, transforms people. He, he is 100% responsible for saving people. Right? You know, the, the people that you want to reach, your unsaved loved ones, you can't save them. You don't have the ability to transform their heart. You don't have the ability to give them life. And that's actually really good news. That's wonderful news because it takes the pressure off of us. Uh, I know that when we share the gospel with others, we, we put all the pressure on ourselves. But when we know that God is in control, that God does the saving, it means we don't have to sugarcoat the message. We don't have to make it more palatable. We just faithfully proclaim the gospel and let God do the saving. But at the same time, this passage is also telling us that we are to persuade people that we're, we plead with people, be reconciled to God. So, so do you go to either extreme here in, in these two truths? Right? Do, do you put all the pressure on yourself to convince someone to be saved, that you evangelise, or, or perhaps don't evangelise, because you think that God has left you all on your own to do all the work of saving people? Because when, when we do think like that, we so easily get caught up in arguments, right? desperately trying to convince them. If I just say the right thing, if I just say the magic set of words, if I just have the right answer to their question, then they'll fall on their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? And then what happens, probably more often than not, is that after we have the conversation, we go back home and think of all the things that we should have said at the time that we completely forgot or we fail to articulate and it's so easy to, to beat ourselves up afterwards and say oh I should have said this, I should have phrased that differently you know, it, it, and now it's all my fault that they, they didn't respond correctly to the gospel but we know from this passage that God has chosen us for some reason us as his messengers, even though he's done that, he still converts people he still makes people into new creations. He transforms them, not us. But then we can go to the other extreme, right? As, as we have this tendency to do, in, in most of these scenarios where I talk about two different extremes, uh, it's not that I pick one or the other. I, I think I'm capable of going to one extreme and then swinging to the other within the same week. That we become fully aware that God does the saving. And then we become passive, we ignore the task of evangelism because God's got it under control. So I, I, I don't have to worry about it. Probably what we can do, or I, I know I often do, is, is get caught up in knowing that God does the saving. And, and so I'll, I'll share the gospel and then just leave it and go, it's, it's not my problem anymore. I, I lose sight of the fact that I'm speaking to a lost soul that desperately needs to hear this news. I lose sight of the fact that I need to pray for them and, and plead with them to turn to Jesus, to, to implore them, be reconciled to God, tell them that their soul is at stake. That, that sense of urgency should come through in our preaching, in our sharing of the gospel, 
that, that love for them, our desire for them to be saved, should be so clear in the way that we share the gospel. Even if, if they don't fear God, if they don't see their need for salvation, they should walk away knowing how concerned we are for them, that we know how much we care for them, and how good our God is to reconcile the world to himself through Jesus. So I know there's a lot here, so let's move on to our our final verse about the greatness of the gospel. So verse 21, the final verse in, in this passage. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I said, I said at the start of this sermon that we often lose sight of the greatness of the gospel. And if we want to become better and more passionate evangelists, we need to have a, a bigger understanding of the goodness of the good news and the greatness of Jesus. If you want to have a better understanding or a bigger understanding of the gospel, this is the verse. For our sake, for, for us, for some reason, for our own benefit... Even though we didn't deserve it, God made his perfect, spotless, sinless son, Jesus, to be sin or to be a sin offering on our behalf. The sins that you've committed all your life, the sins that you've committed this past week, the sins that we will commit this future coming week, Christ died for on the cross. God dealt with them as he punished Jesus as he died on the cross. There are many that, that teach a very shallow gospel that, that they may focus on the fact that God does forgive sins, which is true, but they brush over the fact as to how God can forgive sins. So he doesn't you know, wave a magic forgiveness wand and forget about it and ignore it and pretend that it didn't happen. He, God would be immoral if he were to ignore our sins. He must punish the sins that we have done. And so he's merciful to us by dealing with our sins, by punishing our sins on the sin offering of Jesus. He makes a way for him to be just and be merciful and loving toward us. And I think that the more common thing for us to to ignore or overlook or have a very small view of the gospel is in the next part of the verse. It says, So that we might become the righteousness of God. So Martin Luther, commentating on this verse, called this the great exchange. The exact same thing that happened on the cross is what happens to us. That our sins were placed on Jesus, but then his righteousness is given to us. When God looked at Jesus on the cross, he saw our sins and he exacted justice and he poured out his wrath. And yet now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sins. He sees the righteousness of Jesus and he pours out his favour to us. So we often think of the gospel or our relationship with God as if he, he forgives our sins by ignoring them. Well, and I think this, this is really, really common that we view forgiveness as if God is wiping the slate clean and we now appear before him as a blank slate until the next time we stuff up and then he forgives us again and he wipes the slate clean and then we stuff up again and, and, you know, and the cycle continues. But the scriptures don't speak about him making us a blank slate, making us neutral. Instead, we're given the righteousness of Jesus. 
And that means that we're secure in the gospel. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sins, he doesn't see our guilt, he sees the righteousness of Christ imputed or given to us. And that means that, that no sin, nothing you can do this week will all of a sudden be a step too far and separate you from the love of Christ. You are secure in the gospel because you have the righteousness of Christ when you trust in him. And that, that is good. That is the best news, right? You know, all the hypothetical situations we went through, the best news we can have is that we are reconciled with God, that we are made righteous before God. So how could we respond any other way than to tell other people this good news? So if you're, if you're struggling with evangelism, and I, I'm pretty sure that's all of us, right? I, I know I do. If we're lacking zeal to reach people, then I think the answer is to focus on the greatness of the good news. Focus on the greatness of Jesus and what he has done for you. And then let that motivate us to go out and, and share the gospel. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this good news, this amazing news that saves us, that rescues our eternal souls. That instead of giving us what we deserve, Lord, you give us life. Lord, we thank you that you took the initiative to save us, that you had the power to change and transform us. Lord, help us to just catch a glimpse of how good that good news is. Let us be motivated, compelled to share the gospel with others. Lord, give us the strength, give us the urgency, give us the passion, give us a love for others and a love and a fear of you so that we might faithfully uh, complete and, and partake in the ministry that you have called us to, this ministry of reconciliation. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.